rest of us, we're in Revelation chapter 10 today, the mighty angel and the little scroll. And if you remember, in the cycle of seals, after the sixth seal and before the seventh seal, there was a little two-part interlude. And just as we saw that, so in a similar way, there's a two-part interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet that is designed to help us um, understand, and in this case, it actually refers to the second, to the seventh trumpet. It, in uh, in this passage, it refers to the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel. We'll cover the second part of this interlude next week, but today just chapter 10 of Revelation. It's only 11 verses long. Let's read it together. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his angel was like the and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who, loves for, who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So you probably, if you've read this at a time, unless you've done a lot of study, you probably have some questions about what this is all about. But here are the three that we're going to grapple with this morning. They're sort of, all of them, double questions. Who is this angel and what is he promising? Secondly, what are the seven thunders and why was John prevented from writing about them? And finally, what is this little scroll and why is John told to eat it? So let's start with the first one. Who is this angel and what is he promising? 
So this is in verse 1 through 3. I saw another mighty angel. And by the way, in the Greek, it says, I saw another angel, mighty, coming down from heaven. So it doesn't mean that there's been a series of mighty angels, but there have been a series of angels. This one was mighty. Saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the, on the land, and he called out in a loud voice like a lion roaring. Well, the first thing that we notice about this is that this mighty angel is described in terms in which only God is described, in the, both in the book of Revelation and the rest of Scripture. Wrapped in a cloud, face like the sun. In the Old Testament, only God is in heaven. Only God alone is in, either in heaven or comes to the earth in a cloud. And the same language is used numerous times of Jesus in the New Testament. We saw this language right at the beginning of Revelation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him in 1.7. His face like the sun is virtually identical with the description of Christ in his transfiguration in Matthew 7.2. And in the vision of Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation, in verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Another indication that this angel here in 10.1 is a divine being is the rainbow over his head. This is similar language that's used to describe God in 4.3. A rainbow was around the throne of God there. So it would seem that the rainbow around God on his throne in 4.3 is now transferred to the description of this mighty angel in 10.1. John's vision of Jesus also portrays Christ's feet as being like bronze refined in the furnace in chapter 1. 15. Very similar to the language we have here, that his, his feet were like pillars of fire. But it would seem that this is also meant to remind us of God's presence with his people in the wilderness where he appeared to them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So it's like these two have been put together into him having legs or feet, it actually says as pillars of fire. And the fact that he's got one foot on land and one foot on sea suggests his sovereignty over the whole earth. Well, who could this mighty angel be other than the Lord Jesus Christ? So what then, if this is the Lord Jesus, what is he promising? Because that's what he's doing. We read in 5 to 7, The angel standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. 
But in the days of the trumpet call shall be sounded on, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So the promise is stated in verse 6 that there be no more delay. And then it's explained in verse 7. In the days of the trumpet to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. In other words, we're about to come to the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And on that day, when that happens, it will be all over. There'll be no more delay. It may seem like this waiting will go on for is going on forever. But the delaying does have an end. And then John and in this John also gives us a glimpse of how these prophecies would be fulfilled by referring in verse 7 to the mystery of God which would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And that concept of the mystery of God is such a rich one that this uh, Greg Beale, who I told you wrote, wrote this great commentary on Revelation, he wrote an entire book just about the mystery of God as well. So there's something very strange and mysterious about the way that God brings all this about that's reflected in the use of this word. Instead of merely overpowering his foes, like that's what you would expect, instead he triumphs through suffering. And that's the mystery that this is referring to. How did Christ conquer? He conquered through the cross. And now his people conquer in a similar fashion. It looks like and sometimes feels like defeat. But the defeat of evil is actually being accomplished by the apparent victory of God's enemies over God's people. God's people, in other words, are already winning spiritually even when it looks like they're losing. Just like Jesus did. It looked like he was losing. It looked like he was being finished. It looked like it was all over. But that itself was the way that God was bringing his victory to pass. And the enemies of God's people are already being defeated in spite of their apparent victories. Unbeknownst to the world... The persecution and death of Christ and his people is the proof of their faithfulness and sets them up for resurrection. Snatching final victory out of the jaws of apparent defeat. So the persecution of the church is God's secret weapon by which he wins his victory over the church's persecutors. Just as it was in the case of Jesus. We'll talk more about this when we get to the question about the little scroll. But now let's look at the seven thunders. What are these seven thunders and why was John prevented from writing about them? 
This is in verse 3 and 4. It says, The mighty angel called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was a, John says, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So John was getting a message. He was seeing something that he wanted to write down. Just like he's written down all these other things. But this one, before he could start writing, the Lord speaks out of heaven and says, Don't write this one down. Now there's really not that much to say about this because John was prevented from explaining it to us. It sort of seems like there was a new series of seven introduced, like the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. But this one, as John went to record it, like he'd recorded the others, he was asked to refrain. And this command to seal up this part of the revelation of the thunders is in vivid contrast to the command John receives at the end of Revelation 22.10 to not seal up the words of this prophecy. So here is the part of John's visions which he's told not to write down and not to communicate to the church. The only conclusion we can come to, it seems to me, is that God doesn't want us to know everything about what's going to happen. And he wants us to know that he doesn't want us to know everything. There are parts of all this which are kept hidden from us. And we need to be content about not knowing. It reminds us of Paul's vision of heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. Where it says, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So now we come to the third and final question. What is this little scroll and why does John eat it? Or why is he told to eat it and then eat it? In verse 2, we're told that this mighty angel that represents Christ had a little scroll open in his hand. And then in verse 8 and 9, John tells us that, or yeah, we're told that John takes the little scroll and he eats it. And it's sweet to his taste, but then it turns bitter in his tummy. Perhaps when you hear about this little scroll, you think of the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, which was in the Father's hand upon the throne, and then taken by the Lamb. If, you're the, if you thought of the connection between those, you're not the first one. In fact, it's difficult to figure out the meaning of this little scroll without reference to that earlier scroll in chapter 5. There are some striking similarities. Both are held by Christ as the Lamb in Revelation 5 and now as the mighty angel in chapter 10. In both visions, there's a transfer of the scroll. On both occasions, someone approaches a heavenly being and takes the scroll out of the holder's hand. Both visions have talk about the scroll being opened. 
they both have striking similarities to a vision in Ezekiel 2 that makes you think that these are not to be taken separately as two completely different things. But there are also some pretty significant differences between these two scrolls. This scroll is open. Nowhere is there any reference to the scroll being it's tricky how to word this nowhere is there reference to the scroll being open in in chapter 5 or in the subsequent dialogue about that scroll it talks about it possibly being open but it never says it's open in chapter 5 God holds the book and the lamb takes it or God holds the scroll and the lamb takes it and by the way scroll and book are interchangeable here so don't think that there's any difference. The word that's translated scroll, we're translated scroll because that's what they used back then. Today we use something that we call a book, but it's really the concept, not the form that's in mind here. So, in chapter 5, God holds the book and the lamb takes it. In chapter 10, the mighty angel here, who represents Christ, holds it. And John takes it. But the most obvious difference is the fact that in chapter 10 here, the scroll is referred to as a little scroll. Now the Greek word in chapter 5 for scroll is biblion, from which we get our word Bible. But the Greek word here in chapter 10 translated little scroll is a variation of the word biblion it's called a diminutive which means it's you know we have this in our language but especially in other languages they have words that mean a little one of this you know like we have a, a, a book and then a little book is a booklet it's derived from the same word and the same thing we have this diminutive form of the word biblion. It's actually uh, biblia, bibliaridion, bibliaridion, which is a variation from biblion, and uh, it means a small book or a small scroll. Though the word biblion, scroll, is used 25 times or so in Revelation, this is the only place where Bibliaridion is used. So, the big thing about this scroll seems to be that it's little. Not only that, but this little scroll in 10.2 is introduced without a definite article. So it's not the little scroll, but a little scroll, leaving the impression that we're seeing it for the first time. The best conclusion, it seems to me, is that the two scrolls are related, but not identical. And the key to their distinction is in two things. Their size and the person who takes the scroll. We saw that the scroll in Revelation 5 represented God's plan of redemption through the cross... And it was Christ who was the only one qualified to fulfill it. That's why Christ takes it from the Father. 
But the little scroll is not taken from the Father by Christ, but from Jesus by John. Seemingly as a representative of the apostles and the representative ultimately of the church. It seems to represent God's purpose and plan for his people to bring his beloved ones to victory through suffering, just as he did with his son. So, in the little book, like Jesus, the people of God seem to have their calling, their assignment to conquer with Christ through their sufferings. So Christians have a similar calling to Jesus, but on a smaller scale. Thus, the smaller scroll. When John is told to eat the scroll, and he does so, he is accepting this role and this strategy. This is similar to Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, where Ezekiel is given a scroll and he's asked to eat it and he does so as symbolic of accepting his prophetic call and it is also taste sweet to him but why does the scroll taste sweet at first but then turn bitter in his tummy as it says in verse 10 sweet as honey in my mouth But when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and exactly as he'd been told it would. Well, back to Ezekiel. When Ezekiel ate his scroll, he said it was sweet as honey, Ezekiel 3.3. So we get that. It's a, a, uh, you know, the sweetness represents the wonder of God's redemptive grace and the gospel of Christ and the message of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, Psalm 119, 103. The sweetness may also represent the joyous effect God's words have in empowering God's people to live out their lives in Christ. It may represent the precious encouragement of his promises to his people. But all of us know, who've lived a few years at least, that sometimes you eat something and it tastes good, but later on it doesn't do so well farther down. It gives you troubles like maybe heartburn or stomachache or worse. And that's exactly what happens to John here just as he was told. So what does the bitterness represent? Well, there are probably many things that it means. It probably refers to the resulting experience of rejection and persecution which arise on account of the gospel. It probably refers to the suffering which accompanies the joys and satisfactions of following Christ. Paul said, I die every day in 1 Corinthians 15.31. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one in this room that can feel that myself. It could also refer to the non-repentant response to the message. 
It's painful to watch people turn away from the hope of the gospel to their own ruin. Remember how Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they had not received him. Luke 19. And remember Paul in Romans 9 too. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart because of his fellow Jews who were without Christ. The Christian life and calling are bittersweet. Jesus made that clear. But the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18 But even in this life, the process does not end with bitterness. After receiving... Enjoying, digesting God's message, the process moves on to proclamation. And so the passage ends in verse 11 with John being told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The word received from God then becomes the word proclaimed for God. And this is part of our calling as well even if it stirs up trouble. I'd like to give three brief parting words from this passage before I end. First, the end is coming. This much we know. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but whenever it is, you will be there. There will be no more secrets. There will be no more pretending. That day will be the most important day of every one of our lives. Either for good or for ill. Only fools live now as though that day is never coming. The second thing. God doesn't tell us everything we want to know. Rather, he tells us everything we need to know. Sometimes he withholds information. Sometimes he reveals it. Both according to his good purposes and wisdom. There is much withheld from us. Remember how the Gospel of John ends... In these words, John 21, 25, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. We just have a tiny little piece. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things are God's. The revealed things are ours. Keep this in mind the next time you languish in the darkness of confusion. And finally, in Revelation 10, 3, The mighty angel roars like a lion. And in this, of course, we see Jesus 
speaking words of authority. It reminds us of Aslan's roar in the Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, it's hard to imagine that Lewis didn't have this as part of his inspiration for creating the character of Aslan and making him roar. This is not a meek Jesus who is hesitant to insert himself into the conversation. This is the voice of the one who's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and a face like the sun. This is the voice of the one who puts his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Woe to the person who will not listen to this voice. There are times when God speaks with this kind of power and authority. There are also times when he speaks much more subtly and gently. But woe to the person who needs great peals of thunder and lion's roars to pay attention to what God says. Those people may not hear until it's too late. But how blessed is the one who strains to hear even the still small voice of God. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you. You speak and the earth trembles. The great oaks are shattered. And Lord, we thank you that we can draw near to you in spite of this because you have invited those who surrender to your son Jesus to be your children. Oh Lord, work in us that we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are at work within us, giving us the desire and the power to achieve your purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.